Right now, though, we are starting the show talking about the report released earlier today, and this has to do with what went wrong when it comes to long-term care facilities in this province and the review of COVID-19 outbreaks. And Richard Zussman, Global News legislative reporter, is joining us now to break this report down. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. So what does this tell us as far as why we saw so many outbreaks and so many deaths? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a few different things here, and, and the numbers are at times startling, right? We, This report looks at from March 2020 to February 2021, and we know that those in long-term care were most vulnerable to COVID-19. But what this report details is that those that lived in long-term care were 33 times more likely to die from COVID-19 than the general population and that there were some serious issues connected with long-term care uh, due to the pandemic. So one of them uh, was a lack of um, uh, paid sick leave for employees. And that meant that workers were going to work sick, bringing the virus with them and leading to transmission and death. Only 60% of staff uh, in long-term care and assisted living are currently entitled to paid sick leave and one-third receive six days per year or less, uh, which what we know about this virus is not enough. And yes, the province has done some things to address a wider sick leave program, but not enough to fill these gaps. The other one was around uh, scope and frequency of testing. We heard advocates calling for this for a long time in long-term care. As the pandemic went on, the PCR test uh, expanded. We also had better rapid tests, and those tests were not employed to the rate they should have been in care, according to the report from seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie. And uh, because of these uh, missteps, uh, it led to, especially in the second wave, a higher rate of transmission and outbreak in care homes than we should have seen. The report notes, and I'll also note, that BC led the way in Canada when it came to the response in the first wave in long-term care. But when it came to the second wave, British Columbia fell behind. And uh, Mackenzie uh, hopes that you know this report will help serve as a guide as we work our three through the fourth wave, but also potentially planning for future pandemics. When you talk about testing as well and rapid testing, and certainly there has been a lot of talk about that and questions about why they weren't used earlier and more frequently. One of the lines that stuck out to me was the report identifies that fast notification of the first case and testing staff within the first 48 hours were more likely to contain an outbreak and 40% of outbreaks that had not tested all staff by the fourth day grew into larger outbreaks. I mean, that, that really does show, doesn't it, that had those tests been used, those outbreaks wouldn't have grown. Yeah, that was one of the big findings of this report, as you noted. Early detection is key. And yes, early on, there were concerns about the reliability of those tests. But those questions have gone away mostly. And also, it would provide, as we've heard in all settings, a sort of extra layer of protection. And so as cases go undetected, uh, the likelihood of the virus spreading increases uh, seemingly exponentially by day. And that is highly concerning. And that led to, you know, small outbreaks becoming big outbreaks. You know, one of the good news pieces of this report is that almost three quarters of outbreaks were contained to four or fewer cases and 75% of outbreaks had zero COVID fatalities. But that also means that 25% did have fatalities in that first year. 
and uh, more than you know a quarter of them uh, had more than four cases, and in some cases a lot more. You know, we saw some substantial outbreaks in a number of care homes uh, where you know the the care home operators in the province were never able to fully get a grasp of it until the virus worked all basically all its way through the care home. And it's interesting you point that out as well. So it is great news that there were cases where there were no fatalities, as you mentioned. But then you look at what happened at Little Mountain at that facility yeah. and the number of fatalities and the other centers where were things that were nowhere near that. Yeah, and Little Mountain is one of the great tragedies uh, of this pandemic. And the, the big challenge with Little Mountain was just the lack of information, right? That there was a miscommunication to those with loved ones in the care home, but also Little Mountain struggled to get on top of what was actually happening in that setting. And by the time they'd got on top of it, it was too late. And we now have vaccine, which is uh, hugely beneficial, but there are still gaps that exist within that system. And there's still calls, obviously, to provide boosters, uh, not just for those in long-term care who are residents that are going to be receiving those boosters, but also for the staff and anyone else entering the homes. And yes, we continue to have, you know, expanding, uh, as of yesterday, this plan to go to vaccine cards for visitors of long-term care, all of that helps. But it comes down to using all of the tools we have and, I wonder, we'll speak to Minister Adrian Dix hopefully a little bit later today uh, about what sort of extra barriers the province would be willing to do and whether putting in uh, more testing at these facilities, even now in the fourth wave of this pandemic, would be beneficial. Uh, one of the other findings, too, just wanted to quickly touch on this. It also found that sites with lower levels of registered nurses as a proportion yeah. of the direct care hours more likely to experience large outbreaks. Has that been addressed? Yeah, I don't think it's been addressed yet. The province continues to grapple through these staffing issues uh, around, uh, you know, the multi-site policy and uh, restricting where people can work. But the registered nurse piece, I think, is part of the larger solution. I know uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix is acutely aware of that challenge, uh, and we'll hear if that's part of his response uh, later on today to this. But, you know, there obviously is a lot of work that needs to be done in addressing a lot of these concerns, and this will come with cost. You know, briefly, we didn't even mention yet one of the recommendations, which is everyone have their own room in assisted living and long-term care. That could add a lot of cost to the system. It's a cost that I think, based on what we've seen in the pandemic, is one that's worth the province investing in. All right, Richard, thank you so much for this. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. Talking more about a report released earlier today by BC's seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie, releasing the results of a province-wide review of COVID-19 outbreaks in long-term care and assisted living sites during the first year of the pandemic. And we just talked with Richard Zussman about some of those findings. Let's bring on Dan Levitt, CEO at Kin Village in Tawasin. Dan, thank you for coming back on the program. Hi, Jill. Great to be here. Uh, one of the recommendations in this finding is that, uh, and not a huge surprise, that in rooms and, or sites that had shared rooms, they were much more likely to experience a larger outbreak and that having private rooms would be safer and be beneficial in many other ways. Is that something that's even possible? Yeah, it's definitely possible. And unfortunately, it's not as simple as just removing, um, if it's a, a four-bed room, not just, it's, it's nice just to remove, remove those three beds, but where are you going to 
um, put those three people. So we need to look at the capacity that we have in the system. And uh, essentially, we're going to be rebuilding um, a lot of those those care homes, especially the ones that are owned and operated um, by the health authorities. Those are going to be the first ones to be rebuilt. And I hope to be here in announcements uh, later this year and into next year because that was a promise that the uh, current government made in the election was to invest a big chunk of money into into those um, replacing those buildings. And I think we're going to see that the elimination altogether of those ward-style rooms. Um, we do need a few in each home so we can have couples, uh, married couples, or perhaps um, friends or siblings who want to live together. But um, the single rooms with an ensuite inside that room will definitely make a big difference. And in a facility like Kin Village, and I, I'm familiar with that just because I had a loved one who lived in Kin Village, there are a lot of the private rooms. Is it something like that, or does even that model need to be updated? Yeah, so I think we have to start with looking at the rooms. And I'm glad that of the recommendations, the seven recommendations in the report, um, basically um, four of them deal with um, HR issues, human resources issues, two of them deal with infection control, but it really is the building design. And we talked about this before, um, Jill, it really makes um, a difference if you can get away from that institutional hospital style um, model where you have the long corridors and people are portered three times a day, usually for meals to a central dining room. And even when you have smaller dining rooms, we don't, we still have people congregating together who don't necessarily live in the same cohort. So the idea that in our case, we have a hundred people living here and um, we do have several um, co- communities, but for, for the most part in some of these homes that we've seen these large outbreaks, um, you could have um, around 75 or even greater number of people in one of those cohorts. And it's almost impossible to separate them because they have to go to those, those communal spaces for their meals and activities. So we do need to change the whole physical layout of these buildings. Uh, the report also looks at staffing levels and and finds that sites with lower levels of registered nurses as a proportion of the direct care hours more likely to experience large outbreaks. How do we tackle that? Well, I think we, we tackle it by increasing the, the direct care hours in particular around RNs and LPNs. And as we've seen over the years, the complexity of long-term care has only increased and the, the care levels are going up. Um, so we're seeing people moving in later in their disease process. So we, it is more like, if you will, the hospital-style care, which is really an RN model. So we do need to add more nurses and that's going to, we can't do that overnight. Just like building these buildings, we need to start now to get the nurses to enter the field and to make long-term care more attractive for nurses to want to enter. But we do need to increase the number of RNs. I think that was a very smart recommendation. Uh, do you think it's possible, though, because we've been dealing with a nurse shortage for many years in this province, and it seems like it's, it's been going on and there hasn't been a solution readily available? Yeah, so, I mean, there are different um, options around the health and human resources. It's a huge challenge um, and it's something that we're all facing. And it, you know, it is getting to that point of a crisis, especially with all the different um, circumstances around single-site orders and people not being able to work on multiple sites. Um, so we do need to really rethink that and to, to make the, um, the, the attraction in long-term care being much greater for nurses. And at the same time, we can be looking at when we re-engineer and reinvent the nursing home into the small households, we can actually look at the role of nurses and think about um, where nurses are needed and where they're not needed, where we can have an LPN or a care aide um, doing that work. And in some cases, even the work of a care aide could perhaps 
be more focused on what they can, what they need to do. So things like portering or feeding, you don't have to be a carry to do. We can have volunteers and we can supplement that because we're really um, short in our industry right now. And a, a lot of us are experiencing incredible overtime right now. Uh, it also talks about increasing paid sick leave, saying that workers coming into care homes, into long-term care facilities in the beginning of this pandemic with symptoms or, or sick was part of the problem. Is there a move to increase sick days? Well, currently, um, all um, employees who are under the master collective agreement, uh, they have 18 days of sick time paid per year. Um, if they need more, there, there's other ways of um, paying people for sick time. But really, they sh- we, we all should know that if we um, have that sick bank available um, and we're feeling sick, we should not be coming to work. I think there is, um, previously, there was pressure on us um, in the industry to control sick time. It was a benefit that was um, allotted to, to employees. And as managers, we were encouraged to basically balance the budget and to to manage that, um, I think it's really important that um, we encourage people not to come to work uh, when they're sick and make sure people know they have the 18 days available and that they're there when they need them. And Dan, just wanted to ask you as well, not in today's report, but yesterday, a confirmation that visitors to long-term care will have to show proof of vaccination. Do you see any issues with with making people do that? Or are you hearing anything about that policy? Well, I think it's really important that we make sure that um, we implement that correctly, that um, we talk to family members, especially the ones who aren't vaccinated, and ensure that there is a member of their family who is vaccinated who can visit. Because, you know, my concern right now is that there'll be someone who lives in care whose family, for some reason, is not vaccinated and they won't have visitors anymore. So we really got to make sure that we find... um, I wouldn't say replacement, but find somebody else who can visit the loved one in care. And that is so important to have people from the outside coming in. Um, it's something that we all missed uh, tremendously, especially during outbreaks when, when seniors were isolated for so long. So we we got to make sure that people coming in are vaccinated in long-term care. All right, Dan Levitt, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for your time today. Anytime. Thanks, Jill. Well, this was a story that I know Mike Smith talked about on his program with the so-called dog whisperer. But we are continuing to talk now about a dog who is named Bronx. Bronx was on death row, but has been granted a new lease on life by a B.C. judge. So what exactly happened in this case. Joining me to talk more about this is Lisa Warden, a freelance writer, also an independent scholar affiliated with the Animals and Society Research Initiative at the University of Victoria. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with this case? Sure. Um, uh, The original owner of Bronx, um, he's on a disability pension. And he did not have uh, the funds necessary to hire a lawyer. So he did initially have a pro bono law student lawyer who withdrew from the case in in mid-July. I stepped in and had a high learning curve because I've been um, representing uh, Mr. Benora since that time um, and had to learn on the job. I've had a lot of help from various individuals, including Rebecca Bretter, um, fantastic uh, advice and input and um, various other individuals along the way. And give us a bit of the background, if you can, for people who aren't familiar with this case, the fact that Bronx, uh, what, what was Bronx, what had Bronx done and why was Bronx this dog on uh, death row? Well, uh, he was uh, a, a almost eight, uh, sorry, almost three years old 
when he first had an incident. And in that incident, he bit a, a really small dog weighing four pounds. Um, and he had not shown any, had no history of any um, aggression or uh, problematic behavior before that time. Um, that dog subsequently died. But in court, uh, we proved that there was no proof that uh, it was Bronx's bite that killed the dog. In fact, the, the walker of that tiny dog snapped the leash so hard to try to get the dog out of harm's way. And in fact, her dog had, had uh, provoked Bronx. Um, Bronx eventually came running over and went to bite the dog. And just as he nipped the dog, she pulled the leash so hard that the little dog went flying into the air above her head and slammed down to the ground on the other side of her. Uh, no autopsy was performed. There was a bite on the dog, but there was no conclusive evidence that Bronx had actually killed the dog. And this is one of the falsehoods that's been flying around in the media that Bronx killed the dog. Well, th there's absolutely no evidence to, to show that he did kill a dog. There's evidence that he bit the dog. Right, okay. Uh, uh subsequently... Um, this year, he bit a passerby at a, at, at a soup kitchen type of place. Um, the dog had been given a plate of, with bacon on it, and he was eating it, and he was startled as someone went uh, walking close by him, and he, he, he nipped that person, and that person did not sustain any serious injury. Uh, there were also two incidents uh, between those two, but there was no... Um, there was no eyewitness proof or anything like that to those. And, and then there was no serious injury. Uh, so it was the city of Victoria, then I understand, that filed the application to have Bronx destroyed. And talking about those incidents, uh, was it back in, in 2018? So is that what led to Bronx being put on this, on this kind of wait list that he was to be destroyed? It was uh, it, it was a bit curious that if they were so concerned about him that they didn't do this back in 2018. Uh, they they uh, seized and impounded Bronx in March of this year after the bite uh, of the the person who was passing by him when he was eating. Um, so that's when he was impounded and the city filed an application for destruction with the court. And I mentioned too, Mike Smith was talking about this. So during all of this, while this was all going on, Bronx was actually adopted by Ken Griffiths, who Mike spoke to. He's kind of known as the, the Comox Valley dog whisperer. Uh, what did he say about Bronx and what kind of a dog that Bronx is? Well, um, actually, I was frantically, it took a long time to actually get the original owner to agree to transfer ownership to anyone because he's, he, he loves Bronx. Bronx is the love of his life. So it was a bit of a frantic mad dash to find somebody who was willing to adopt Bronx because I knew the court wasn't going to grant custody back to, to Mr. Benora because of the incidents. Um, the only person who actually stepped forward was Mr. Griffith, and uh, we're, we're grateful that he did. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, he hadn't actually met the dog, and we did have a, a fantastic um, canine behaviorist by the name of Gary Gibson, um, go with Ken Griffith to the pound to um, assess Bronx. And uh, both of them found that Bronx uh, learns quickly, that um, Mr. Griffith was able to, um, to uh, correct him, and Bronx uh, responded very well, um, and that he did not um, pose any unacceptable risk, especially going to Mr. Griffith, who has a secure compound, who 
has uh, a great deal of experience uh, dealing with uh, dogs with behavioral and aggressive issues. Uh, so really, um, it was uh, kind of a miraculous situation for Bronx and um, the kind of thing that, that he needs in order to, to be rehabilitated and, and, and come around and, and without any risk to the public. Uh, so what is happening now with this case? And we mentioned off the top that he has been given a second chance. What led to that decision? Well, we had a fantastic judge. That's part of it. Uh, judge Adrian Brooks. <clears throat> we had um, this case was long. It was six, six pretrial hearings and um, four days in court for the trial, plus an additional uh, morning receiving hearing the judge's decision. And that was uh, yesterday. Um, judge Adrian Brooks had a, a huge amount of evidence and case law to consider. Um, he took all that was nonsense <laughs> and set it aside. And he managed to uh, navigate his way through through all this with amazing clarity. Um, and he found that um, uh, Bronx did not pose an unacceptable risk to the public. Um, and so uh, we're grateful that um, that uh, mercy prevailed and that uh, Bronx is going to be given the second chance he deserves. And um, we're confident that he's going to, to show that, that he uh, was well worth um, getting a second chance. What will need to be done, though? Because people will hear that, and, and I think on one hand, be happy that this dog is getting a second chance, but also hear that there were five incidents that, where, where, that led to him being labeled a dangerous dog. So will there be things put in place, like he has to be muzzled or he has to have more behavioral training? Or, or what will be done, I guess, to, to help the public uh, feel rest assured that there will not be more incidents involving Bronx? Well, if I may correct you, there are four incidents, um, two of which are were hearsay. Um, uh, well, since the uh, BC Court of Appeal ruled in the in the Santix case in 2019, a judge cannot release a dog on conditions in provincial court. Um, they uh, they have to decide whether the situation into which the dog is going to be released is a safe one, and 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 reason and it's reasonable to assume that. Or, or whether it's not. And uh, maybe if this dog were going into a different kind of situation, he might, a, a judge might find that he posed an unacceptable risk. But uh, we showed video evidence of uh, Mr. Griffith, the, the dog whisperer, working with the dog. Um, we uh, had a very lengthy expert testimony from um, Mr. Gary Gibson, who's been in the canine behavior consulting business for decades and has um, served as an expert witness in over two dozen court cases. Uh, our case was, was very solid. Um, I think the public can rest assured that the dog is in, in very good hands, that part of the reason the case went the way it did is because this is a dog who has a stellar temperament that he was living in the downtown core in under conditions that um, for many dogs would be very stressful, that he, um, uh, you know, ha- developed some behavioral issues during that time and that um, he has demonstrated that he's a very good candidate for rehabilitation and that this can be uh, carried out safely. I think um, it's a win for, um, for dog owners and for dogs, because 
the judge also said that animal control agencies have um, a great deal of latitude and discretion to be able to work out with people and dogs they, they identify early on as having behavioral issues of concern. They have a tremendous amount of um, potential and ability to work out with those people what those people need to do to avoid this getting to the situation that the Bronx case got to. So this could have been avoided um, had, had we had a more, um, let's say, cooperative spirit between animal control and the individuals involved uh, from the get-go. Um, and so I think um, it, it sends a clear signal to animal control agencies that they need to up their game and step up to the plate, that as, as uh, community members, they have a, a way more responsibility than has hitherto been uh, formally acknowledged uh, to, um, to help avoid these situations getting to this uh, place and uh, getting to this position in the first place. Right. So are you hopeful that this case then will maybe serve as a reminder or help other cities or jurisdictions to, to not go directly to litigation or to, to make a destroy order to try and find other avenues to, to resolve these types of issues? Well, I think, I think um, in all fairness, Victoria Animal Control did what they thought they, what they normally did, uh, what they thought they were doing that. But uh, I think what it shows is that top-down antagonistic policing, as has become very evident in many contexts over the past few years, it only exacerbates and even creates the kind of problems that those agencies exist to solve and address. And so the whole concept of policing, and, and make no mistake, animal control officers are, are in law enforcement, by law enforcement. Um, it, we need to relearn how to do that. It's got to be cooperative, uh, constructive, community-based, where you uh, create relationships with the community um, who you are attempting to um, serve and instead of uh, antagonistic relationships in which uh, nobody wants to cooperate with one another because they see the, uh, the people in power as, as uh, bullies and villains. Um, so uh, I think we need to rethink about how animal control is done, and I think there's a huge potential for that to, to happen now. Uh, you know how people who get traffic tickets can go to traffic school to work off their tickets? Well, there's no reason why something along those lines can't happen with animal control. These are often for-profit businesses. There are plenty of animal behaviorists who would be only too happy to offer pro bono sessions in the, in the parking lot or at a park or whatever, where, where uh, downtown folks who may not be able to afford dog trainers, they could come and work with those people with their dogs if they're having issues and in partnership with animal control. There's huge potential for creativity, for, for helpful solutions here, so that we don't need to repeat the mistakes of the past. All right. Uh, Lisa, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this case. I know it has generated a lot of interest. So thank you again so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for covering it. 
Well, if you are a fan of cold case files and following along when there are updates, you will have likely heard about this story. A team of specialists, specialists that ident- investigate cold cases, say they have identified the Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer was one of America's most prolific serial killers, terrorizing communities in San Francisco in the 1960s. The Case Breakers is the team, and this is a team of more than 40 former law enforcement investigators. The team also involves journalists and military intelligence officers. They've taken on other mysteries, such as the D.B. Cooper hijacking heist. We've talked about that before on this program. Jimmy Hoffa has been the subject of their investigations as well. Well, they say that the killer is responsible for other slayings as well, and that the Zodiac killer has been connected to not only the five murders that occurred between or in 1968 and 1969, but others as well. So a bit of an update, although some are now questioning whether or not this new evidence is reliable, whether or not it uh, is true. Now, one of the glitches in this case is the case breakers have identified the Zodiac killer as a man by the name of Gary Francis Post, but Gary Francis Post died in 2018. Let's talk a little bit more about how we're seeing cold case files solved and what goes into doing that kind of investigative work. Cece Moore is a genetic genealogy expert, also the founder of DNA Detectives, and joins me on the line now. Cece Moore, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I know this isn't a specific case of DNA evidence coming forward or new technology helping out, but what are your thoughts on the the fact that this group, at least, uh, says they've identified the Zodiac Killer? Well, I think this group sounds like an amazing group of experts, and the news is very exciting. I hate to be a party pooper, but I'm a little skeptical, and I really want to wait for the FBI to confirm this. I urge caution because I see so much misinformation being spread about cases that I am personally working on, Hmm. and I know that information is incorrect, and I receive emails weekly from people who claim to know who the Zodiac Killer is even though I'm not working the case. So I hope it's true, but I think some of the headlines are a little misleading. They say investigators have solved it, but these are not the official investigators. This appears to be an independent group, and they're tying him to Sherry Bates' murder out here near where I live, and I have some... I'm not convinced she was a Zodiac victim. So um, I'm going to wait and see, and I urge your listeners to wait, too. But... Again, I hope it's true. Right, but it sounds like we maybe need a bit more information and a bit more investigation. Absolutely. And the FBI has been investigating this case for a long time, and then the local agencies involved. I really want to hear it from them before I believe this case is solved. What is it about this case, do you think, uh, like many other cases as well, that really gets so much attention? And and here we have these murders that took place in the 60s. And like you said, now potential links to other cases, although that hasn't been uh, proven. But what is it about these cases that you think that gets so much attention and keeps people's attention and gets these groups so, so focused on trying to solve them? You know, I'll tell you, it's really interesting to see which cases get a lot of media attention and which don't. I've now helped solve uh, over 180 cases in the last three and a half years. Some that I thought would get lots of attention didn't. A lot of it depends on 
details like the Zodiac case, I really believe it's because of the letters and the ciphers that he sent. That made his case different and more mysterious, and it really got the public involved in trying to figure those out. And the fact that so far they have not had DNA evidence you know, just makes this case all the more mysterious. So I think it's always hard to know which ones will capture the public's attention. But things like uh, serial killers writing to the newspapers and sort of taunting the public, I think, definitely make them of more interest. Right, because, and in this case, too, looking at those letters uh, from from looking at the case, so there were the handwritten letters, there was an anonymous typed letter. It do, it does seem like whoever it was, I mean, can you tell if something like that is a, a hoax or is it possible that, that somebody's trying to, to pull one over on law enforcement or if it actually is genuinely from the killer? You know, I've worked cases where each of those things were true. In the April Tinsley case, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, it actually was the killer that was writing the letters and taunting the media and the public. And we know that because there was DNA left with those letters and it matched the DNA from the crime scene. And we finally solved that case in 2018 uh, using genetic genealogy. And then I worked a case up in Snohomish County, Washington State, which was that couple from British Columbia, Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kylenberg. And letters had been written in that case, and it ended up just being someone totally unrelated, a homeless man, I believe, that was not connected to crime. So it's very difficult to know unless you've got that DNA match between the letters and the original crime scene DNA. And with Zodiac, it was the type of murders where he wasn't leaving DNA behind. So that makes it much more difficult to confirm. I think they feel pretty strongly that most of those letters at least are you know, authentic. I'm not an expert in that, but from what I read, they seem to feel strongly most of those did come from him. So is this a case, do you think, even if there's nothing, it's not kind of proven beyond a doubt that this, in fact, is the Zodiac killer, because we've now, or that we now have a name of somebody who died in 2018, uh, if he was buried, is there a chance of going and getting DNA and trying to prove this case? Sure. And We've done that on lots of my cases. Many of the genetic genealogy cases are very old, and the perpetrator is dead, or the potential perpetrator, and they've exhumed the body to compare. In all of those cases so far, it's been a positive identification. The problem with the Zodiac case is it's unclear whether there is any DNA to compare against. So it would certainly be possible to exhume him, see if he matches DNA, but only if they were successful in getting DNA from the letters that they believe belongs to him. You know, he could have used water to seal those. He could have asked someone else to do it. Hmm. Some cases trace back to postmen who have sealed them. So because the FBI has not been forthcoming as to whether they've been successful in actually getting a DNA profile, uh, I, I think it remains to be seen whether this could ever be proven once, or, once and for all or not. Is I guess there's no chance then, or, or because we're talking about murders that happened in the 60s, or even with now that they've they this team anyway has has linked it to the Sherry Jo Bates case that that you talked about. Would there be a possibility of that there is DNA in those cases that it could be cross referenced with? Yes, I think there's a much better chance of there being DNA in Sherry Jo Bates case because it was more of a personal 
up close crime. And those are the ones that we can usually solve with genetic genealogy. You know, it's hard to uh, not leave DNA behind in a very intimate, uh, you know, up close crime versus when Zodiac was shooting someone from a distance. But they also haven't uh, confirmed they have DNA in that case. This is a case, I, I, I live in Southern California. I'm very interested in that case. I've inquired about it, uh, but it is not clear on whether they are have been able to to find a, a strong genetic profile on any of that evidence. On these very old cases, we have to rely on the original crime scene investigators who have done a good job collecting evidence they couldn't possibly know, you know, later it would be so valuable, pre-DNA use, like this one, um, and also then it being stored all these years, not lost and not having fire or floods or being accidentally thrown away. So without having inside information, you know, we just can't really predict that because we don't know if they have that DNA profile, same as the Zodiac case. If they have both, I'm sure they've already compared them. They already know if it's the same person or not. And the fact we haven't heard that it is makes me think uh, it's probably not. But if they don't have DNA on one or the other, we just don't know. So there's still a lot we don't know, even though we're seeing all these headlines that it's solved. I, I think uh, we need more information. All right. Well, they are fascinating cases. And I know it's uh, so interesting when we see updates like this. Cece Moore, thank you so much for your time. We'll talk to you again, I'm sure. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much.